podcast. Today we have a special guest, another brother-in-law, Alex Neff. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Uh, we, <laughs> we are uh, glad to have him on. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations about philosophy uh, outside of the podcast um, that he's been part of. And so it's really, uh, really neat to have him come on a podcast. He is a, um, a uh, philosophy major. Uh, he's about to, he's finishing up his dissertation. And so he is, uh, in the academic world, it's called ABD, right? All but dissertation. The dreaded ABD. The <laughs> dreaded ABD stage, yes. Uh, and so, and he is teaching at uh, Belmont Abbey as a visiting professor. Is that the right term, I guess? Sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, as an adjunct professor, he's, he's teaching um, college-level philosophy yep. in the Honors College, uh, along with our sister, Matt and I's mm-hmm. sister, uh, Lisa, who's also ABD. Uh, so welcome, Alex. It's good to have you. Um, I think you're going to be a great addition to our topic today. It's um, pretty heavy in terms of its, you know, <laughs> the philosophy, me- uh, metaphysics, and phenomenology that we'll be getting into. So yeah, last couple of podcasts we were kind of dipping our toes a little bit into this <clears throat> phenomenology and metaphysics stuff, and we're like, let's get Alex on here because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to need some like actual thoughts on this. It's good to be here, but we'll see if I'm of any help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. by no means a, a specialist or renowned philosopher. Uh, that's of, what of a philosopher would say. So that's <laughs> no, good. But this one means it. <laughs> oh my gosh! All right, so Lee, what are we? Yeah, well, talk today, about today is definitely gonna be our most philosophical podcast yet, ever. I, I think. And um, as Father mentioned, uh, we wanted to get a discussion going about the relationship between phenomenology and metaphysics. Uh, I probably in the last year or two have been reading a lot of phenomenology prior to that, existentialism. And I think I think reading my reading of existentialism kind of moved into a, f- a more phenomenal, a ph- phenomenological area uh, because there seems like there's a little bit of a relationship between that. So from my reading... It seems like you have uh, Husserl as maybe like the father of phenomenology. Sure, yep. Um, but it seems like from there his student Heidegger takes it maybe more in an existential realm than Heidegger or than um, Husserl. You could certainly say that. And I would actually say most phenomenologists depart in some fundamental sense from, from Husserl, at least the, some of the, the well-known ones, and that uh, the notion of phenomenology as a school is is somewhat somewhat tenuous uh, much different than say calling people a bunch of platonists right um, mm. that has much more of an actual doctrinal or conceptual unity than the notion of pheno- phenomenology in the history of philosophy it is uh, much more uh, permeated with uh, questions and puzzles about mm. phenomenology itself and what it is yeah, it, it seems like from my reading of, of Husserl, he uh, had maybe more of a, I don't know how fair this is, a scholastic bent. He, he was still kind of, the question of essence and knowing the essence of, of beings was still kind of on his mind. And uh, from one of his, another student, Edith Stein, st- still kind of worked in that phenomenological, Thomistic realm, but that you don't really seem to get with Heidegger. And and it seems like most people, uh, I think even Peterson mentioned this recently. He talked about almost like Heidegger being 
the father of, of phenomenology. Sure. And so, and so to your point about so many people, when they think about phenomenology, it's this existential strain as opposed mm-hmm. to maybe the more uh, Thomistic or scholastic right. strain. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll hear that term with Heidegger as existential ph- phenomenology, mm. right? Yeah. As opposed to just the, the plain phenomenology of, of Husserl. Um, is that which kind of what you had in mind? Yes. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's what I was thinking. So I, I've, uh, I guess we can try to pin down a bit of what phenomenology is. I think we throw it around a lot. I've noticed I've thrown yeah. around scholastic, scholastic a lot mm-hmm. and have never really defined it. But I think that therein lies a, an issue because yeah. it seems like existentialism is, is also a bit tricky to pin down. Is it, yep. a, is it a philosophy? Is it yep. a methodology? Is it a right. way of being? Same thing with phenomenology. Right. It's like, what, what exactly is this thing? Yeah. Is it a formal school or is it? Yeah. And so many uh, of the early phenomenologists might, might have lay, laid claim to someone like Kierkegaard as, as actually doing phenomenology in, in some places, but without really knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what Husserl is up to that makes him the father is that he really tries to make phenomenology explicit um, as a kind of uh, science, really, a science of consciousness. Um, not just any science, but uh, the the science, or or you might say the philosophy. Um, so it's it's much more uh, bold in its pretensions about uh, what phenomenology is, um, and its scope, which in a sense is is everything. So so Husserl tries to make a case, sort of to continue the 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 modern and postmodern philosophical battle of, you know, what is philosophy at all and how do we ground it epistemically? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, phenomenology is, uh, is a entire philosophical viewpoint, a defense of what philosophy r- really is for Husserl. Um, and for him, it is, if it is a science, it's the science that all others, in a sense, are based on or are secondary to. Um, so, you know, take biology, Husserl is going to say, you know, phenomenology is not biology, uh, but a science, uh, without phenomenology, you can't make sense of biology or any other science that it is actually mm. the, uh, pro- preliminary science of our contact with r- reality, which for him is in, in consciousness. And I guess that's part of the, the phenomenological bent is, um, uh, seeing, uh, the the real and our ideas about things as as in relation to to the mind. That kind of ties into the question that we were talking about off camera about whether phenomenology is the opposite of metaphysics, because yeah. metaphysics is, seems like it's also trying to get at that question of like what are we even doing, like what is this, what is being, and so it's like is metaphys is is phenomenology from our perspective and metaphysics is from some sort of outside perspective on trying to get at being. Right. And that's what, um, that's what I was just thinking of as Alex was speaking there, uh, that, you know, I think roughly speaking, metaphysics would also claim that, um, you know, there, there is no biology without, um, right. Being right. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was like, I feel like the metaphysical claim. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, on one hand you have phenomenology as claiming, um, uh, as claiming a foundational um, worldview before you start other uh, endeavors, yeah. and then metaphysics kind of claims that right. as well. Um, so, uh, I think uh, roughly speaking, maybe this could be a good uh, jumping-off point 
um, for our discussion. It seems like, um, very crudely put, phenom- um, phenomenology is like bottom up, a mm. subjective experience to get to the um, objective world, uh, an objective claim, whereas metaphysics is more um, top down, objective approach to claim the objective claim. I mean, we can parse that out right. and you know make distinctions with that. Was Husserl but... the one who said that he coined that term transcendental subjectivity? Like, was that his term or? I know that's a term I, used. I don't know if he coined it, but I do know that he, um, that that's one of the terms fundamental to his thought. Oh, yeah, right. As, as a phenomenologist, and um, and that it is it is central to his thinking. A friend of mine was telling me it's actually something that comes late in his mm. work. Um, with there's sort of some contention about how it fits into some of his earlier ideas. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's. Mm associated with with his his work mm. transcendental subjectivity so we can talk about it but i'm not sure if he coined it i think yeah it sounds like uh, some things kant talked about so i'm just he- hesitant there right so it so. seems like if if metaphysic is trying to get to something like an objective reality and they'll use that word objective you can't say subjective has no truth to it there has to be something else there has to be a truth about the subjective experience. So like, what do you call that? Like a transcendental subjectivity. I mm. think Peterson mentions yeah. that also. And that it's like, there's like, you know, if you feel the stove and it's hot and I feel the stove, then it's hot. There's like a transcendental subjectivity to that reality. Yeah. Um, that's not just objectively hot. It's also subjectively transcendental. Right. I, yeah. yeah. But the issue that like a Cartesian might have is that, when I touch the stove and it's hot, that's like that's the phenomenon that is telling me that this is unpleasant. But if I see you touch the stove and you react in a similar way, how do I break out of this trap of um, saying that well, this is this is all in my mind? Like I'm just perceiving you getting hurt by the stove. But how do I say that that's something outside of myself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that. That's the trick i think for the cartesian yeah but no i mean this is a great entry point into sort of the reason i think phenomenology exists and we could talk about phenomenology being a response to uh philosophy obviously before husserl but especially uh trends in philosophy since descartes Mm -hmm. we might call modern philosophy um and i suppose it leads to this point um, and this this goes with the distinction we earlier made about, well, subjective and objective. Well, I would say that there's a lot of purchase in getting to phenomenology, think about that distinction, but only and especially if you add that uh, phenomenology is also doing something meta where uh, because it wants to claim to be the 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 perspective, yeah. um, to be philosophy and first philosophy in a sense, at least this is for Husserl, mm-hmm. um, uh, it... It, want, it has the authority, you would say, to call into question that distinction. Where are we getting that mm, distinction, mm. subjective and objective? So I think it's right. totally right uh, in, t- in terms of our intuitions to br- bring that up in terms of the notion of, um, what is it, transcendental subjectivity. Right. Yeah. Um, but it, it just to add that meta layer where we're saying, okay, on what basis did we make that mistinction, distinction? And I think that's part of the critique that phenomenology gives yeah. is that, it uh, conceives of a, of a self, say with Descartes, that in a certain fundamental sense is separate 
from the objects yeah. of, of the world. That's a good point. Right? Yeah, so Descartes, really point. As, as the foundation of his philosophy, finds he can only assert this idea of his own existence, and everything else is in, in suspense. And though, in a way, that's later corrected by sort of the system, a system of of arguments that works out a proof that no, it seems the external world does exist, yeah. um, and other things exist. Uh, it, in its initial sort of primary relationship, is actually something kind of totally separate from the self. And phenomenology totally, I'd say, calls out that 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 initial move. Yeah. Right. Um, and so one thing that's going on with phenomenology is actually um, sort of reintegrating our intuitions about things Others. as existing right. as um, being that's the that's the original presentation of things so I'm talking into this microphone um, and there there is already somehow an intuition that it exists in the fact that I'm even referring to it and that I'm, that I'm speaking into it would be absurd for me to deny that so there's some notion of the original situation of our perception not even bringing up the question about uh, is this is this really real yeah like am I dreaming um, and that's sort of an intuition, I would say, a phenomenology that's saying, well, what is that original uh, intuition? And uh, shouldn't we give that some authority? Now, right. there's a lot, a lot more that needs to be said, but this idea that the way things, as, as things present themselves, phenomena, um, and give, giving cre credence to that before we add this ref reflective mm -hmm. apparatus that uh, makes us sort of beholden to assumptions about the object and yeah. whether it's real or not. And mm. yeah. Now that's a, that's a really good point. And I'm reminded of, um, you know, Carl Stern when, in his chapter on Descartes, he talks about um, Cartesianism as being foundational for the scientific method. Um, but the problem is, is that the scientific method has been um, expanded to fit all things when it really shouldn't. <laughs> right. Um, and so when it's, the scientific method is great for um, uh, for studying like things in isolation mm -hmm. uh, physically, um, but I think when you um, you take that to its limit, you fall into this like absurd worldview where you're questioning everything and you can't act intuitively. And so, you know, all this is to say, I, I think um, it, it's a uh, like phenomenology provides that, like we said off camera, a foil to Cartesianism in the sense that it gets you back in touch with your intuition where you're not going to fall into these traps of thinking in, in these absurd, like in this absurd way um, because of that intuition. And, and so yeah. I think phenomenology is, um, it, it's wise to say like, what is intuition? You yes. know, why do we approach things, like you said, um, without even thinking about them as if they exist, right? right. Uh, so No, yeah. and that, that really comes back to uh, really, some say, like the term in focus if we're thinking about phenomenology is, is intentionality. Um, yeah. So the sort of standard uh, history of philosophy story about Husserl's as the founder of phenomenology is, um, it goes along the lines of he is actually inspired by this other German philosopher uh, named Brentano, it's his first name, uh, Franz, Franz Brentano. Um, and he writes a work called uh, Psychology from an Empirical Standpoint. Um, that's in 1874 that he publishes that. And it's actually uh, really Husserl is inspired in an important way by uh, some, of, some of the views articulated there. Although 
Husserl is going to identify what he's doing as really uniquely phenomenology. So it's an insight, an intuition that he gets from Brentano, but you wouldn't necessarily call Brentano uh, a true phenomenologist. Mm. After all, Husserl is going to be the one working out what uh, the idea of a science of phenomenology. So, so Brentano would just consider himself doing a certain kind of psychology, psychology from an empirical standpoint. Mm. Um, and, but it's his notion of intentionality, which really grips Husserl and um, is a big part of his development of his own view of, right. of phenomenology. Yeah. So, and, and intentionality is, is it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of like it's, we're conscious of things. Yeah. Like, like it's we, we, when we experience something as something. Yes. And so when we intend, it's, uh, it's just a matter of uh, we're conscious of real things. Is, <laughs> is that fair or... Yeah, it's. I mean, this becomes whether it should be or not is really becomes a fraught term, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. partly because it just has other historical lineages. This this yeah, notion right. and and common uses, um, but you're right in a, in a technical sense, um, and it, it it sort of covers what uh, Husserl would have talked about as descriptive psychology, and I think Brentano himself, um, and how that psychology is not focused on. Um, the world of things as a uh, system of system of causes. So, sort of think about psychology in in the form of, say, you know, say studying neurotransmitters. Um, you know, there was sort of a pretense that psychology, just like biology, was still in that kind of scientific mode, mm-hmm. right? The empirical, um, heavily empirical, um, sometimes positivist mode. Um, and so, what Brentano is actually doing is saying, no, there's something really important to psychology, this descriptive psychology, which takes in things in this, what, what you said, uh, think in our thoughts or our consciousness being about, always about something. Mm. Um, and he delineates, you know, different, different modes uh, of, of consciousness, but all of them have that aboutness, mm-hmm. right? So whatever, whether it's a sort of an active judgment or, or a perception, um, there, there is this always an object and aboutness to, to thinking. Um, and that becomes kind of this, the proper sphere of, for Brentano, descriptive psychology, and a way for Husserl for, I would say, the uh, initial intuition into phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that aboutness uh, kind of corrects or acts against um, like a, a Cartesian epistemology, right, that your, your consciousness is – is about things, and so there's a relation between the, the object and the knower, and as opposed to object and knower mm. separate, that there's some sort of relationship between the two. Because your consciousness is intending or is about other things, it's it's clear that they're not separate. Is that you know, like completely separate, and or is that is that fair? Yeah, no, I th- I think that's the right that's the right direction to go. Is that um, in talking about this aboutness, you might think, oh, this is further. Uh, hardening this distinction between subject and object, but I think you're right. It's actually draw, drawing them to, to get together mm-hmm. and saying that thought actually always has that character, whatever whatever it's about. Um, and that so it's sort of the nexus between the two as the new sphere of investigation, mm-hmm. where uh, and importantly, it has a different mode by which you would examine the, the content that is intentionality. Namely, it's descriptive rather than explanatory. Because the issue, 
with sort of explanatory scientific analysis is you're 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 assuming that 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 hard break, which is kind of that's the kind of critique of scientism. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here we're actually always ne- we never stop investigating it as being in that domain of intentionality, um, and and we do that by staying close to it or in a genuine relationship, which is a kind of uh, describing of of an intuition. Um, or what's sometimes talked about as c- catching, catching, um, uh, catching as a con- catching consciousness in the act, or catching mm. thought in the act. Mm. A kind of kind of metaphorical phrase, but uh, sort of trying to look at something that's pre pre reflective about our relationship to things, mm-hmm. um, things as they as they present themselves to us. This is some, this reminds me of something that John Verveke has coined as relevance realization, in that. It's kind of a cognitive science term in that he is trying to describe the phenomenon of even perceiving anything and that how do we differentiate uh, the paper from the table or even the paper as its own thing? And there's this kind of um, gestalt that happens of realizing, like looking into the, the chaos of all the stimuli and then having some sort of relationship with that which what we perceive and knowing it's telos in a, in a type of metaphysical way. And then, and then all of a sudden, all of those things jump into perception of the thing. Like it, it kind of gestalts into like, well, now I see things because I, I, I have an intuition of what they're for. Mm-hmm. I know that it's not an, an obstacle, it's a tool. And like mm-hmm. you start to have all of these processes that, according to Verveke, are like inexplicable. As to like yeah. how we're even perceiving things, and and our relationship with the things are maybe not as Cartesian as we once thought, that they're more relational, um, and have to do with our perception as opposed to just them existing outside of us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense that sense of relationship with the thing is right. important, and I think that that's what um, I guess Peterson goes into this. Um, I know Peugeot does a little bit too, of like having a uh, a narrative about your worldview, like, or your worldview as a narrative mm. um, so that you can understand what a desk is in relation to not only yourself, but the room. And, and then that way you can use it, but all this is going on subconsciously. You're not telling yourself a story. Right. right? Um, but that, that, that idea of like your mind in the world as being in relationship with each other. Right. Um, uh, is necessary mm-hmm. to act in the world, I guess. Um, yeah. Lee, can you bring up, speaking of that as like subconscious, can you bring up that thing we were talking about before with uh, Jung's hermeneutical existential phenomenology? Like how it relates to like... Yeah, if, bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, talk about that. <laughs> I just think that relates in terms yeah. of the subconscious thought and perceiving things and what kind of like Jung's yeah. twist <clears throat> perception on that. Uh, yeah, so I, I know uh, Heidegger... I, I, I guess I've seen a breakdown of Heidegger being described more particularly as interpretive phenomenology, this this element of hermeneutics, mm-hmm. and then maybe someone like Sartre ushers in a more existential. But Interesting. Uh, I guess a quick definition of existential phenomenology is it's a method of describing and interpreting your lived experience. Mm-hmm. So Jung's idea is, is that, not again, not just text, but people and experiences, your dreams, your... Uh, your symptoms, your uh, relationship with people can be hermeneutical in that you can interpret and describe them. And so uh, he has this poetic way of talking about people because he's, he, he says that, you know, when, when he talks about the soul or the shadow, it's not that these things exist, but 
it's almost you act as if it, it feels as if you have this shadow aspect of you and in that's his hermeneutics of interpreting this side of you that you don't really know the side of you that agitates you and that needs to be integrated and i guess it's it's as a existential phenomenology in that you very much experience your dreams as real mm-hmm. as, as we've been talking about you you intend these things not as something as separate from you but as something that actually happens to you it you know when you have a disturbing dream, it's not like, well, that was just a dream mm-hmm. or that was just a dark thought or whatever it is. It's, you know, you, you experience them as actually having existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess he, he takes uh, experience at its word. You know, it, when we were talking about this kind of pre-reflective, like yes. you don't experience your dreams as not real. You experience yes. them as very real pre-reflective. Mm-hmm. And then yes. maybe later you kind of go back and mm-hmm. say, well. Yes. Yeah. I think this pre no, uh, this pre reflective attitude is the natural attitude. Have you have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, there's you have like the natural attitude, and then the phen- is it phenomenological? Right, at, at, right. Uh, and this is things are a little fuzzy for me on this, and, uh, and partly because phenomenology is not <laughs> is not at peace with itself yeah. <laughs> uh, as as a concept um, and as a school, uh, but also because I'm just I'm not. I'm, I don't consider myself a phenomenologist. I've had a few, two or three classes with professors that um, would have taken that name um, or certainly published in, in that tradition. Um, but no, I think uh, that that idea of the natural situation is something that's really prominent in Husserl's thought. Although I do think it's kind of controversial what relationship it actually has to phenomenology. And that I think some of the criticisms of Husserl um, come back to the question about what what that pre-reflective situation is and how how it either uh, assists or actually thwarts uh, the quest of philosophy. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I see this as sort of one of the fundamental problems. So even take that term, uh, lived experience, um, obviously means something different than how it's commonly used now. Like I mean, I be, yes. hear that uh, more in a political. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mode, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is obviously not what Heidegger or who <laughs> right. or, or is talking about. Um, but what is, what are they talking about? And uh, that lived, what makes it lived experience? Well, I think you're right. We're talking about uh, what a sort of primordial or original relationship that we have to the world. And what phenomenology is doing is it wants to make much of that rather, rather than, than nothing. In fact, mm-hmm. to, to give credence to that. On the other hand, and this is where we get into another interesting term and idea is the, the notion of the ph- phenomenological reduction. Um, uh, phenomenology, as it aspires to be about, about truth, in some sense, about philosophy, um, does want a kind of privileged, uh, Seat. hyper-real yeah. access yeah. to reality, or, or else we could just say everyone's a phenomenologist. And I think actually some people would say that mm-hmm. to, right. to an extent, right. uh, you know, they, without knowing it. Husserl, I think, would definitely reject that insofar as he's saying, no, this is, this is a science, right? And not everybody is, you know, not everybody's a biologist, not everyone's a phenomenologist. And so that movement from the natural situation to a, a philo- philosophically insightful one, um, and I think what Husserl would sometimes talk about as eidetic, having to do with the forms, ideas, essences. Mm. And a lot of uh, Husserl's work focuses on the notion of, of essences um, as what, what phenomenology deals with. 
which is interesting because it sounds very platonic, Mm -hmm. you know. Right. Um, Right. And that, so going from this original situation to eidetic consciousness or transcendental subjectivity, Mm -hmm. uh, that is what makes it uniquely philosophical. Uh, But for me, the question is, it seems to, on the one hand, again, put pressure on the natural situation. Mm-hmm. Like we're not, we aren't fully seeing the truth of everything. And on the other hand, it doesn't want to fully depart from it, but it wants to treat, you'd say, our original intuitions uh, ser- seriously um, and not sort of uh, construct some reflective architecture of thought that actually blinds us to what uh, our intuitive intentionality uh, with the world. So we're actually somehow holding on to that natural situation. Well, we are also isolating out essences if we do the phenomenological reduction. Is that um, that natural disposition? Is that is that like where Jung kind of thinks archetypes sit in terms of like having that a priori like narrative about the hero's journey or whatever it is? Like even as as simple as perception, there has to be this a priori narrative. To your point, mm-hmm. Father. Um, that then when you perceive, that comes into play. So is that kind of like where Jung, like is that how that bleeds into like Jung's psychology in terms of how he thinks of archetypes? Like, you know, along the, the hermeneutical existential phenomenology, like if, he, if he's taking that in that light, then that means when we're perceiving experiences and all those things, that a priori structure, that natural situation is those archetypal narratives swirling in our head. Yeah, so... Uh, Jung definitely works on the natural attitude, and he says, I think the the natural attitude and the philosophical attitude, we'll say, is, in his opinion, where Gnostics and Orthodox Christians split, mm. that the Gnostics were willing to take the natural attitude seriously, um, where, you know, where yeah, it does appear as though the world is both evil and good equally, mm-hmm. not just, you know, in the appearance, mm-hmm. and, and they took... Uh, they they took um, psychological experience more seriously, whereas the Orthodox Christians wanted to look at the world more philosophically, more metaphysically. So for Jung, when he's looking at these archetypes, he's seeing a natural pattern. Uh, one definition of archetypes, because uh, Jung's limitations when it comes to philosophy are also in his writing style. <laughs> and so he, there's multiple definitions of archetypes if you read all over. Mm-hmm. But one is uh, a typical and reoccurring pattern, mm-hmm. that this is just something almost cosmically written. Like I said, it, it is, that's why they're narrative motifs. Mm-hmm. It's just, if, if humans exist, this is what's gonna happen. These are the patterns that emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, natural. It's not philosophical. But he does have this idea that the core of archetypes are philosophical or, or they're metaphysical. Mm-hmm. We're not sure of their origin, um, which I think in a sense he's right because you, in order to get the first archetype, well, that had to come from, like, where yeah. did that come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, but that's a whole, mm-hmm. <laughs> a whole other rabbit so hole. So how, right. how would Jung distinguish, like, dreams from reality and distinguishing them in insofar as one as more real than the other i don't know if you turn you that's like almost a platonic term like mm-hmm. more real um i'm thinking of an example that my phenomenology professor gave uh he said that he was out camping one day i don't know if i said this on a podcast before yeah okay. and he thought he saw a bear yeah yeah, yeah. okay um 
I mean, you can tell the story. Yeah, tell yeah, the story yeah, yeah. Tell. yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, he was out camping one day, and um, in the middle of the night, he got up to go to the bathroom, and and as he's going to the bathroom, uh, he sees a bear, and he goes back into his tent, and he goes back to sleep. Nonchalant. Nonchalant. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, in the morning, uh, he alerts a, um, a ranger, mm-hmm. park ranger, saying that he saw a bear, and the park ranger says that there are no bears in the area. Uh, and so the park ranger told him, like, you must have been dreaming. But he knows that he wasn't. But at the same time, he knows that, like, this park ranger wasn't just lying to him. Like, there's no bears in the area. So he said, like, how – that that experience of seeing the bear is real to him. Mm. How does he know that it wasn't real? But it, from a union perspective, it seems like, you know, and then maybe this is being unfair to Jung, but he would have been like, no, that was real. That was real because you had a dream of it and it's real, right? Um, but then, like, is there a distinction that Jung would make in saying that, like, that was real in your psyche, right? But everything exists in your psyche. Mm-hmm. You see, now we're getting mm-hmm. into that, like, that's a little bit of right. a Cartesian problem, I uh, guess. I, I think Jung had common sense. For sure, on a certain level, no, but what you're bringing yeah. up is important, but on a certain level, he would, of course, say there's yeah. a difference between whether... He actually perceived with his senses in mm-hmm. a waking state. Yeah, the bear. The bear. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and the idea of having a dream about it or a hallucination about it. Yeah. A- any old presentation. Um, but I, I feel like the the problem you're bringing up gets gets to. I don't know. Is it, is it multiple things going on? Yeah. Well, yeah, and right. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, one of Jung's big problems is I think I think Alex, you're right. Ultimately. He, he does make it this distinction between reality and, and fantasy, but he does really bog himself down with, well, everything is psychological. Like, mm. like everything you experience is through your psyche. So right. in it, terms of me, in terms of meaning, right. I think this is where, yeah, mm. th- yeah, that's, that's mm. fair. Um, but you know, he does have this kind of Cartesian, he's kind of bogged down by Cartesian, by this Cartesian idea mm. of, of a little bit of a separation of like what like the only thing you can know is the things that are in your mind and your mind is the thing that sort of creates reality. But right. yet he would also agree that you know it's not as though we're all having the same creation fantasy of this table. Mm-hmm. Like this you know right. so he right. but he I think he lacks the the philosophical uh skill or, mm-hmm. or precision method, precision to kind of articulate yeah so right so so on one level you can say okay you know the bear is not physically real but then you go back into the question of like what does that mean right and is like as a thing and this is where you know metaphysics would come into um would come in handy Mm -hmm. it's like okay well no that 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 particular bear did not have being that's what like you know i guess aristotelian might say Oh, well, yeah. you're, right? I don't know why you're going with the park rangers uh, sort of weak view. Oh, there's not any bears in that area. It's like, well, could there be any bears? Because maybe this Fair. was the rare yeah, case. No, I want to. So, but I, that's not the point. <laughs> but I'm kind of I, I'm putting my, my my chips that maybe he really did. The see park ranger was stood yeah. in for what is for Descartes is like that evil god, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is a false yeah. narrative. That was, yeah, right, tricking him. Yeah, you need to just yeah. mistrust yeah. your senses. Well, I mean, he did. Uh, Peugeot recently talked about this with Peterson. It's like, well, he did see a bear. He, he did d- see he didn't, a bear. He didn't yeah. see uh, a bunny. Yeah, right. Like, or, well, like, see implies 
um, Does on it? your five senses. Well, the, well, okay. So, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like archetypally, like or symbolically, sight uh-huh. is not with your eyes, or not necessarily with your eyes. Right. Um, yeah. Scienti- but this is the thing. This, this is where Verveki comes into this conversation because scientifically, you would say, well, well, the light didn't get into your pupils or whatever. But right. it's like even cognitive science is running up against this problem of sight not being completely explained by just science. Like it's it, like the perception of something is getting to this, is getting at something that's beyond, well, I don't, I, you know, like just the biology, like you can't, it's not explainable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it is, it is just seems like, well, a that's what problem. I was, you know, making that yeah. distinction between like he perceived a bear. I think we can yeah, say that. Sure. Did he see a bear is different, right? It's different if you're a Cartesian. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, like like biologically see or play on the word see. sight, right? Because sometimes yeah. Yeah. that term is the sight, which uh, the sight of the eye of the mind. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Plato plays with this mm-hmm. a lot versus, okay, um, plain, physical, raw photons, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. sight as a strict sensation. Um, but Matthew, like Matthew brings up, actually, and even, and even the science, I would say, points to uh, an essential and fascinating relationship between, say, cognition and strict raw mm-hmm. raw vision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, notion I always think about in relation to that is something like uh, face face blindness, condition of face blindness, because um, you know, an example of someone who has this condition, you could have twenty twenty vision. Since there's nothing wrong with with the uh, physical apparatus of your of your eyeball and the way that it, it perceives light. Mm-hmm. Um, but there you can have that all in place, but actually have a sort of neurological cognitive deficit mm. that that's but it so hinders you that you can't see things, even in a, in a, say in a, in a physical sense, right? Yeah. You can't identify faces and um, and uh, I think it's Oliver Sacks has this book called you know, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, mm-hmm. right? Mm, Which yeah. you would say, that seems like a visual problem, right? Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't, can't make the intelligence between a hat and his wife, and yet it's not. Mm-hmm. And not in the strict raw sense. It, it's, well, it is, but it turns out vision involves processing. Right, yeah. That, yeah, is, yeah, that exactly. is cognitive, and and um, you'd say ah perception yep. meets perception. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is actually what it, what it is to see things in the original mm-hmm. uh form of perception yeah yeah doesn't solve the bear problem but yeah <laughs> yeah I, yeah i'm i'm just yeah i i don't know like what would Jung say ultimately um speak for us lee yeah in Jung's place <laughs> yeah yeah it's because again like you can make the distinction of like the broadest the broadest claim is that both of them are real right in a sense that they exist in your psyche but then when you get down to the particulars, one is physically real, the other one is not. Does that impact Jung's um, thought? Like, and I mean, like Alex said, originally, he had common sense, and mm. so he would say that. But um, it seems to me that, that that means that the one in your psyche and not the one that's physical is less real. And that's a metaphysical claim, right? Um yeah, right. I, I don't know. It's... I, can I take a stab? And this might you. not be entirely uh, technically correct in, in Jung's philosophy or terminology, but I think we should look at what, what would he be interested in? Because 
um, let's say it's real or it's or it's not real. Um, how how was that bear perceived and and recognized as as a thing in terms of um, his response to it, um, the the other kinds of thoughts or emotions that are associated with it, mm-hmm. right? So I think he would want to look more to again meaning, right? In either case, the meaning of the of a bear is still there, especially yeah. if he mm-hmm. thought it was real, even if it wasn't. Um, well, what goes into that notion um, of well, it's not just the bear; it's 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 the predator, right? Yeah. Or it's the it's the it's the monster yeah. out there. And in fact, that's why sometimes these kinds of objects do accidentally manifest themselves. Like, say, if we're afraid of something, yeah, you know, as all of a sudden we start seeing right. you know, creatures in, in the shadows of the woods. Yeah. Um, and I think like this is what Jung would be this is his territory where he would say well look where um this this series of associations um are are kind of uh tend to accumulate around certain focal points and that would go back to to the archetype in this case you 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 know the terms better but i'm thinking of the monster no yeah i I think Um, i think that's a a great answer and then that's where i was uh i'm glad you said that because that's where i was leaning towards because uh but i i i kind of lack the language but you, you got me started on something that uh, Jung's psychology has been called a psychology of understanding as opposed to explanation. And you mentioned this before, mm-hmm. though. But mm-hmm. I think you're right that he would say, okay, so you have this bear, and the bear is a subject and you are a subject. Again, this is the hermeneutical of what does it mean. Uh, when, you, when, you su- when you study a text, you, want it, you study it as a subject that has answers to your questions. Mm-hmm. So in a way, this bear has an answer to something that in, within him. Mm. So uh, this is why Jung wants his patients to sometimes visualize and personify their symptoms as a person to enter into a dialogue with them. Mm. And so I think you're right, Alex. He would say, what is the bear trying to tell you <laughs> in a sense? Mm-hmm. Of, or was mm-hmm. it telling you about yourself? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, that you showed up thinking maybe I could get eaten by a bear this weekend. Now, is that, right, is, that right. what, um, is, is that what Husserl or Heidegger is getting at with the lived experience? Of like, it's now, it's his experience of what bareness is. Well, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But then, but then so what if, what if I go about my life thinking that bears are harmless? Well, okay. my lived experience yeah. is that yeah. bears are harmless because I, I don't actually have real life experience and I go up to a bear, the bear eats me. Yeah. I mean, my lived experience is false. Well, no, but that... Or not as true as it could yeah. be. I, I think that this is revealing, um, a, um, a, I don't know, a, a, a fault in phenomenology. If, you know, that's a broad claim, but I'll explain what I mean. <laughs> um, another example in that class that I took on phenomenology, um, uh, our prof- same professor, he held up, um, it was, uh, I think, a cup or something or a mug. And he said, um, can anyone describe what what i'm holding and we would describe you know oh it's a mug it has a handle blah 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 um but he said well ultimately like yeah those things are correct but what this is is a gift and it was given to me by my best friend Mm. um and so for him subjectively that mug will mean something different uniquely Mm -hmm. than to anybody else right um and again going back to this idea that like we're in a relationship with the world um, you know, my computer is different to me than it is to you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you're, you know, you're, and so, but if we 
break this down to everything, if we apply this to everything, then doesn't that mean that like we're like I'm living in a different world than you? You get are. a little so, like, postmodern. The solip- solipsistic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Point. Yeah. That if yeah. You, if you take that abstract scientific notion of the world, um, there's like a no way of escaping. For instance, the problem of other minds, or something right? Exactly. Like yeah. that. And you live in um, this isolation uh, where, right? It's only like I mean, you take this to the end, and it does get absurd to where like I can't even communicate with you because mm-hmm. I don't even you know mm-hmm. like we share nothing in common. Isn't that right? kind of yeah. the postmodern project of making everything narrative? Sure, I, say, I, I would say yeah. in metaphysical language, uh, doing away with the notion of say, say the substance or the essence, but mm-hmm. uh, all you're left with is what a collection of ac- of accidents, right? Right, and right. what are accidents? Um, they're they're extremely unique particulars. In fact, so unique that they can't be contextualized mm. in the sense of a right. whole. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and yeah. so, in that sense, the terminology really breaks down. Since I would say accidental is a concept in relation. Right. Uh, yeah. To the non-accidental, right. uh, but it I think it helps get at the point that if right if we are just this uh, collection of raw raw materials, whether that's materialism or or of sense perceptions, yeah, right, then somehow those are set apart in a way that can, can you can never bridge the gap uh, with the world or with with some with someone else. Yeah. Um, and this is that's part of what motivates phenomenology, which is interesting. Because I, I think there's there's some weird ironies in terms of what phenomenology is trying to get away from and where it actually ends up, which I think is yeah. kind of in the same issue. And many have made made that critique. Right. That, uh, you know, what's phenomenology trying to do? It's trying to respect an original relation um, and and not yeah. do damage to it through reflection. Mm. And yet, come and yet on, that's what we all doing. know this is hyper-reflective <laughs> stuff. When you yeah. look up a book on phenomenology, you're like, mm-hmm. this is not sound... Like you know, my uncle, yeah. you know, yeah. um, or who, whoever, right? Yeah, right, uh, right. And so you're actually in this deeply reflective process. And as it turns out, the, insofar as you can look to the history of philosophy, like it did not happen that Husserl established the science of sciences, the ph- phenomenology of consciousness, and everybody just started filling in the blanks upon that foundation. Not at all. Everyone continually called into question that word what the basis was for it, what these structures were, what it's even doing. Um, and not, not all of that means it was, fru- it was fruitless, um, but it certainly, I think most people would accept that, you know, in terms of his, Husserl's explicit pro- project, it failed, mm. right? This is not, uh, it, it didn't work out. Now, mm-hmm. now some people, I'm sure there's the rare person that really believes uh, in, in, in what Husserl's doing, maybe thinks yeah. it's true, but, but I think... At least a lot of yeah, very smart people who still want to call themselves phenomenologists would not take on the idea that they're doing it in the way Husserl was in Intended. terms of what he thought least, it was. Yeah. So Merleau-Ponty, who is a, a thinker that I really like and who I um, actually took a course on, uh, is really influenced by the phenomenological tradition. Uh, but he has uh, he has a lot he has a lot of love for that tradition. But at the end of the day, I think he distances himself from some of the uh, ex- extreme and Heidegger too. Extreme ways in which Husserl's trying to make it this dignified science, mm. um, uh, and it becomes a little bit more of a of a question mark. In Merleau-Ponty's case, it becomes more allied with psychology mm. and with cognitive science. Okay, um, yeah. and so one of the things uh, Merleau-Ponty explores is twentieth century uh, French 
philosopher slash psychologist is like the notion of of embodiment. Um, and with that, he he kind of brings back in the physical and and cognitive sciences into relationship with more of a philosophic insight at the bottom, which is the phenomenal phenomenology. Right. Right. Yeah. So, kind of let's just play with that cup thing a little bit. <laughs> um, so, the description of the cup as like it's it's a container, it's got a handle or whatever. Like those are he wouldn't reject those as. Inaccurate or right. not existing, say, yeah. Right, so I feel like saying that this is a gift exists in the in the potentiality of the cup, right? Like it, it can exist as, as a, gift a gift to or, somebody. Yeah. But if he said, no, this is actually food and tried to eat it, that, that wouldn't work for him. It, so would, like, it would not be um, congruent with the thing itself the nature of the cup the th- yeah uh, yeah I see what right. you're saying so yeah. like he has his own narrative his lived experience of the cup but that's in concordance with the nature of the cup yeah and that still holds the other descriptions within itself right so any any permeation from what the cup really is as through our perception then that's where it starts to break down like if this i'm going to say this is a car it's not going to turn into a car but mm-hmm. if you say this is a gift then that fits into the narrative of cup yeah um right so i feel like we're yeah. trying what what we're trying to describe is like well then what what narrative of cupness exists outside of us and i feel like that's something that Jung is getting at with archetypes of like is there an outside definition of cup that holds in the potentiality yeah. of all these lived experiences right like yeah. like uni- universal structures. Yeah. Well, that's right. very platonic. Yeah. I mean, like the form of the right. cup. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, like it participates in that cupness. Right. And any particular cup, though they look different, like is bound by that form. Right. Um, and then you could say, you can like now like bring that all the way out to like, is life like that? You know, like do we have lived experiences that are idiosyncratic, but that should... L- live within a grand narrative that is more in line with reality than not. Yeah. And are there differences? Like, can we go against the nature of reality? Can we participate with that? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. That's it. <laughs> and I think, like, speaking by intuition, too, um, going on like that, um, the grand narrative of life and the universality of the human condition, um, the, the way that Peterson puts it is that, like, intuitively we all know that there are ways um, that will lead us to perdition. Right, mm-hmm. like we know intuitively that mm-hmm. living is like this way or that way will send you to hell, right? Symbolically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a way in which we see universals acting out, um, yes. despite, like you said, right. despite the uh, idiosyncratic um, patterns, right? Um, right. They might we, cha- change the words or the stories, behind, yeah, but the the concepts still still appear. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. Yeah, no, that's a good yeah. point. So, yeah, I I think um, we're t- like trying to get to the universals. I, I can't speak for Heidegger, but it seemed like you can maybe yeah. <laughs> only, only Heidegger and maybe maybe not even him. <laughs> that's what I hear. Um, but certainly, the original phenomenological project it did believe in. Uh, the existence and the the no the intelligibility of, of essence or or ideos you know the the idea yeah. the form yeah and what you could grasp that through uh, eidetic intuition like you could take the thing mm-hmm. and 
start stripping it, kind of start stripping it away. Right. Stri- stripping that's, away. That's X a way amounts. of talking about the reduction. Right. You call the eidetic uh, reduction. Right. And so this is where you can get to, the, I think, Peterson's notion of there are some ways that are better than others. Is you, you could take, uh, you, you you can do this with anything. Uh, like when I was reading one book about it, I was taking like taking friendship and stripping away qualities. And if, you know, if you strip away a quality of a thing and it changes, that means that's essential. Mm. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah. You know, if the cup doesn't have a bottom to it or something, no it's like well, cup. Mm-hmm. It, or, it was, mm-hmm. it's not a cup anymore. Mm-hmm. So that has to stay. Right. Um, whereas if you took away one handle, mm-hmm. maybe you know, maybe it has two or three or right. you know none, it can still be a cup. So that's not essential. Right. right. There um, are some middle categories that that kind of yeah refine mm-hmm. things in an interesting way. Yeah. Um, that that is the difficulty with eidetic intuition is it's like well because uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought about doing this with with humans let's say you know when you talk about a narrative that works with humans it's okay so what makes a human a human and mm-hmm. there there are tricky qualities right yeah um like we'd say well, rationality belongs to man but then that gets a little tricky it's like well what do you mean you know if you mm-hmm. have uh, catastrophic brain damage or something mm-hmm. it's like maybe rationality is severely diminished it's like well right. there's right. still still human right um so that that gets a little mm-hmm. tricky but i think um this is where uh a, a true vision of human flourishing and one uh that is uh i mean more ideological i think this is where eidetic intuition can actually help mm. uh, yeah. that, is man just economic mm-hmm. is can man mm-hmm. be reduced to economics right no um, right. It, it, if there to, is a nature, a nature of right. man, right. distinct it, and mm-hmm. having certain values and, right. and, quali- and qualities. That's yeah. what we were discussing last time on uh, about Apple's Vision Pro thing, of like uh, the problem with Instagram and uh, social media being like a reduction of like, well, maybe human interaction doesn't need in-person interaction, and that's still friendship, and that can still create bonding and meaning. And we're finding out that it's not like all these people are running around with mental disorders because mm-hmm. because we're trying to pull things away and not relying on that intuition. It's like we should probably be in person when we talk. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, I don't think Zoom calls is going to cut it. You know, like mm-hmm. and there's an aspect of that that we have to return to of being like, mm-hmm. let's stop trying to cut off all these parts that we think are not necessary because of some scientific reason. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. I think there we're seeing a real battle for the essence. Yeah. The right. real battle yeah, sure. for the adios is like mm-hmm. does yeah. is there actually a human nature? Mm. Is there yeah. something that makes man man? Yeah. Or is it all malleable and you can right. just do whatever you want? I mean yeah, that I mean that all seems to be that's that's the that issue constantly fought over sort of in the history of philosophy. And I think to philosophy's uh doom, at least in the sen- in the social sense, political sense in which people, whether they still care about philosophy, um, it, it seems as soon as metaphysics was genuinely called in, into question or presumed to be problematized in some way or made confusing, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that philosophy kind of lost its foothold uh, in the world, that, that, that what was Socrates doing uh, in the most simple sense, at least the way Plato depicts him was never letting this notion of, a, of an idos, of an idea or a form, whatever kind of form it was, but the idea that there is something is a thing mm-hmm. and it has a definition that uh, 
in theory, uniquely corresponds, corresponds to it. Um, and it's by virtue of that definition that you can sensibly, rationally delineate that thing from something else. Um, and it turns out that this, like what you guys are saying, it's, this is not just a academic theoretical practice. This mm -hmm. is, turns out to be a fundamental one that everyone uh, is making and needs to be making mm -hmm. in a certain sense for there to be order. Because what is order but a structured, structured hierarchy of things, right? Right. Um, and, and at least if the, the true order, the things as they really are, um, and then you have like contrived ones and political narratives and things like this. Um, but yeah, if we if we if we've let go of that notion of essence, you know, I think we've let go really of of meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so the possibility of philosophy or of practical philosophy, which which in my mind is you know. The theory of just, mm -hmm. of just social existence, yeah, and, and and good. So, yeah, you can't you can't really. I, I think it's it's impossible to live your life questioning essences, um, or even as a school, um, to actually do that um, consistently in thought. Because when you're question questioning essences, then you have to eventually question why you're questioning, right? Yeah. You always have to have some foundation on which your philosophy lies and rests. Um, and you have to take that for granted or else you can't think mm. at all, really. Right, yeah. And your um, language has already taken that you're, for exactly. granted in, Langu in yeah. the question. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Language actually is one of the um, – is a great, um, um, uh, I guess, proof that we do live objectively mm. um, because we, we are assuming – that what I am saying is worth communicating to either myself or you, mm -hmm. uh, and that exists as a foundation. Mm -hmm. um, so a, communi a communicable one. A communicable, right. yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. So, yeah. So, and I think I think that you can, of course, we need to, and this is what natural science in many ways did. Natural philosophy is actually work out with a lot of nuance and 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 uh, even skeptical. Uh, even a skeptical attitude about what actually constitutes certain kinds of essences, mm -hmm. what makes them tick, and or even the tra uh, transforming of one thing to another, um, you know, corruption and genesis. I mean, all those things mm -hmm. have, in some cases, very strange answers. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is this is kind of a focal point between the beginning of modern modern philosophy and modern science and the old scholastic. Uh, Aristotelian um, Thomistic view of things. It really came. The conflict, in fact, was really about what what was going on with Galileo, um, what was going on with uh, people like Francis Bacon in terms of how they um, were finding a powerful way to observe the world, which it seemed to them was uh, was contrary to the, the the answers of the old old, old logical ones. system. Yeah. But I think it was a mistake for them to critique the system itself and and the logic, mm -hmm. um, ra rather than say it's its application. But that's that's going into a whole other thing. No, that's yeah. We're about an hour in. Let's jump to the bonus. Um, if you guys want to hear that, you can go to basicallyrelated.com for our weekly bonus episodes. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.